We have just one week left before the beginning of the range retreat. Being a late range retreat this year means more than half of the winter has passed. It means we might have slightly better weather towards the end of the retreat. Traditionally, in the monasteries of Ajahn Chah, it's a time where the Sangha puts their effort into the training and the practice of Dhamma Vinaya. It's the closest thing we might have to a, a retreat, a meditation retreat. But it's more than that. It's a time where we put effort into keeping up the training rules and practices that We put effort into maintaining, developing the training rules and practices that are essential to our lifestyle and basic to our lifestyle, but support us in the practice. And when we come into the robes, we're given our three robes and a bowl. So you might say the life of a bhikkhu revolves around these. The simplicity, the ease that we have because we have few possessions. But also we learn how to look after our bowl, look after our robes. There's also a focus for mindfulness, particularly mindfulness of the body. And our practice, you might say, expands out from there, looking after our robes, our bowls, our basic requisites, expands out to looking after our kuti, the grounds of the monastery, the monastery buildings and possessions. and expands out to our <clears throat> relationship with other members of the Sangha, to the lay community, the way we obtain our requisites and use our requisites, and so on. We have many training rules and practices, but 
They're all with the same aims to help us cultivate the Eightfold Noble Path and for living at ease, developing a sense of contentment, being at ease within oneself. All of this, you might say, falls in under the heading of sila. And as we know, when we give the five precepts to the laity, in the purpose of taking on precepts, training rules, observances, it's primarily for our ease and inner happiness. Sometimes at first, when we come into the monastery, there's a lot to learn, so it can also be a cause of stress because we are still new and feel there's a lot to learn. It's almost like there's a pressure on us to keep up keep up with the routine, the practices, the ways of doing things. So we have to maintain that reflection that it's for our own ease of living and for the community as a whole. And it's useful, it's a useful tool for us to train ourselves. There may be a few isolated individuals who can train themselves with very little external structure or routine or training rules to follow. But the majority of us, we come into the monastery, we're we're untrained, unenlightened individuals. So it's a useful way to train us. This is why our teachers from Lumpur Mandan to Lumpur Cha to Lumpur Anan emphasize it, because they know and have seen the value of of the training. Lumpur Cha used to compare it to a glass that you drink out of, a drinking glass. You know, it's something that's fragile, but if you look after it well, it can serve your needs maybe for many years. A drinking glass, if you clean it, store it, carefully. It can be with you for 10, 20 years, even longer. And it gives you benefit, it's useful. The core one is like this. It's something we can easily (coughs) give up or feel we don't need anymore. But we have to be careful because it's such a vital part of our lifestyle and if our mind is not yet trained well enough then to give up the core what is it can be dangerous can lead to instability in our practice and uncertainty in our practice you want to learn how to keep the Vinaya look after your bowl and robes, live within the bounds of the Vinaya, you know how to attend to senior monks, look after the 
possessions of the Sangha and so on. These practices and the training rules that we learn, they, they can stay with you for a lifetime. Whether you're in one monastery or another, or you're traveling, wandering in the forest, or moving from place to place, you take your training with you. And it becomes something that's beautiful and inspiring. And sometimes people who are new to Buddhism or new to Buddhist monasticism are not sure what it's all about. And they see monks, maybe monks going about their business, doing their practices. And often monks can appear a little aloof. But if you take a moment just to think about what we do, it may be true in a certain way we are aloof or aiming for aloofness from the world because a lot of the behavior of people in the world and the activities of the world are based around defilement. But if you look at what monks do, they're not being aloof, they're doing something that's beneficial for the world, for their fellow monks, for the lay people, and for everyone. And many people have the have had the experience when they first visit a forest monastery, Lumpur Chars Monastery, what Pong is a good example. And you walk in from you know, the hot fields around and open areas around the monastery. You walk into the forest through the gates. There's an immediate coolness from the trees protecting you from the tropical sun. But there's also a coolness in the atmosphere. It's a sense of peace. You go into the monasteries. It's not just what upon many other places. You know, there's a simplicity, <clears throat> simple pathways through the forest, simple one-room huts, central hall that's maybe built strongly but not, not so ornate as the city temples. And there's a sense of orderliness and calm to the monastery. If you go to what Nongbapong in the middle of the day, sometimes you hardly see any monk. And someone might tell you that there's 60 or 70 monks living there. You can hardly see a single monk, and there's not much noise or activity. You wonder how it can be possible. Maybe, depending on the time of day, you might see the monks engaged in their regular activities, say at mealtime, coming back from Bindabal, or receiving food, eating, cleaning up the hall, or in the afternoon, doing some cleaning maintenance, sweeping leaves, doing some maintenance project or something. But everyone seems to go about their business very calmly, mindfully. We might also say happily. You often you notice monks are, seem quite happy, cheerful in what they're doing. But the atmosphere is overwhelmingly one of peace, mindfulness. And this is a gift to the world. 
people who can live like this. They're giving something back to the world just by living simply, mindfully. This is the aim of our training, or one part of it, not to be a burden on the world and not to be practicing to increase mental defilements based on greed, anger and delusion. Our aim is to reduce them. And the training that we do is is helping that. But it takes some getting used to. And that's where a lot of our practice is, just getting used to learning, to follow the routine, look after our requisites, do the various practices and trainings that we're given. But it's... Uh, provides a background from which you can deeper your understanding of the path that the Buddha was talking about, teaching. As you do your chores, or as you look after your bowl, as you go here, go there, you're always coming back to observe your mind in each situation. And it's natural that there'll be times when these mental defilements they come up, sometimes unpredictably. Sometimes it's just a continuing, kind of nagging voice, maybe a negative reaction to a certain part of the, the daily routine or the lifestyle that we don't like. Or maybe it's a more particular situation that prompts a particular kind of mental defilement to arise. But our aim is to observe just to watch as we go about these different practices. It's very hard to know what's coming up in someone else's mind, but you can watch your own mind at all at all times. And Pocha used to say, as you're doing your following these practices, doing following the routine, doing the different activities through your day, well watch your mind, observe it. Observe how easily you might get lost into your moods. And does something bring up anger or conceit or jealousy? You have greed arised, arising based around desires for certain things that you haven't got or things you see. This is how we practice. And the peace and the calm of, and the atmosphere of the monastery helps, supports that. Often we can fall into doubt and we think, oh, what benefit am I doing? Just going around sweeping the leaves, coming to the meditation, chanting and so on. But it's because you're practicing in this way, you're benefiting yourself because you're coming to understand yourself by observing the mind in learning how to let go, let go of desires and attachments that cause suffering. And if you have one individual doing that, then they can be an example and a support to others. So one bhikkhu following the core what the training, is supporting the other bhikkhus in doing that. The more individuals you get practicing in this way, in a monastery, or the better the feeling in them, the more we can support each other 
and then even the day visitors or temporary visitors who come will also learn from that experience. It's often a form of learning that is, you know, it's beyond words. It's both visual and it's also sensing with one's ears, even with one's heart, just noticing how things can be done peacefully and human beings can interact in a good way, kind, respectful way. Maybe in the monastery itself we can forget how chaotic, confusing and difficult the world can be. Where people do tend to be more or less, they're less trained and following their mental defilements more obviously. In the monasteries we practice it's harder to hide our defilements. Out in the world things are very complex as people will always have reasons and excuses for their behavior and often because other people are following the mental defilements then it's just seen, taken to be the norm and people don't realize any different maybe. In a monastery we're more exposed in terms of our training and our, our behavior. So this is why it's important to develop a lot of this relaxed awareness, the qualities of patience, compassion, wisdom. Sometimes when we come into the practice we're quite idealistic. We come from the background of having read a lot. We read the suttas and the commentaries and we love to accumulate knowledge right up to the level of Nibbāna and discuss Nibbāna. In one sense that's correct and useful. But one of the drawbacks maybe is that we become painfully aware when kilesas, mental defilements arise in our mind because it doesn't meet the ideal. And we tend to pick on them and identify with them Maybe that can color our perception of our own practice or sense of worth. So it's important to look at this in a balanced way. And you know, notice how we're practicing, how others are practicing around us. And noticing how even if there are some periods where we fall into moods, you may have negative, unwholesome, unskillful mind states arise. That really is only one part of our experience. And how often we miss the good things that are being done. The good things other people are doing around us, the good things we're doing. So as we practice and train in this way, we have to learn how to observe observe frequently, continuously and observe in a balanced way. Our aim is to bring the mind to see everything as Dhamma. That sense of seeing everything as conditions. Conditions, mental states, feelings, emotions that come and go. 
the more mindfulness and wise reflection we can develop, then the more that comes up. It's a great leveler of our experience. Even though we have moments where we might be very happy and excited, moments when we're more depressed and upset, as we keep bringing the mind back to the present moment, developing mindfulness, then as a sense of leveling things out, may not level out the experience from the outside. You know, life is still full of ups and downs, all kinds of things we can't control. But from the inside, you might start to experience more inner peace <clears throat> based on an understanding. You're seeing the passing temporary nature of our moods, you know, all things arise, all things cease. Our moods, our feelings, our thoughts. And the more you practice in this way, perhaps the more you appreciate the value of the core what. It's something you can return to, say, if you're in a more negative mood or state of unhappiness. You return to your basic duties, practices, and that can help carry you through. And the longer, the more you do it, you see how how skillful a way it is to to train oneself, particularly to rub away some of the rough edges that we bring into our into our bhikkhu life, you know, from the lay life where we've perhaps been more selfish and following our desires and attachments more obviously. We come into the bhikkhu life, we have to learn how to let go. But it develops something very beautiful, good to see. If you've ever had you know, the experience attending on a senior monk, some of the senior monks who come from overseas, particularly some who've been in the robes many, many years, you can see some of the good habits that they've got into that support their practice. In the early years of this monastery, Lumpoplian came to stay a few times, and attending on him, saw how he had used the very basic, ordinary practices that we learned from day one in a monastery, and used and kept them up through his bhikkhu life, even to the point when he was you know, a famous, considered to be a famous enlightened master, he still kept up many basic practices. He looked after his requisites. Sometimes it was very inspiring to see him, you know, just unpack his bag, place things out in the places he'd want in his room. He'd look after things. The way he bathed, the way he used a toilet or bathroom, whether it was you know, a private bathroom he'd been allotted or it was a communal bathroom or toilet, he'd always be cleaning <clears throat> before he went in, after he, before he left. Clearly someone who had overridden his own, maybe the original desires of more selfishness or stubbornness we often have, we come into the monastery. If you go into a toilet and it's dirty, you might be caught into a reaction of aversion. Or if they couldn't be bothered to clean it, well, no, I'm not, being, I'm not going to clean it. 
Uh, Lumpur Plain was someone who didn't do that clearly. He'd always be cleaning a toilet or a bathroom, a shower. It was clearly just the way he, he did things, mindfully, with a sense of appreciation, gratitude even. She talked to him about the way he practiced. He said, well, all these requisites and lodgings are all given to us by the kindness of the laity. It's our job to look after them. If other bhikkhus or other people don't look after them, that's their affair. Each individual has to take responsibility for their own practice. We have to do our own practice and what we think is appropriate. You'd even do that on a plane. You go on a plane, uses the toilet, and still be wiping and cleaning in the toilet in a public convenience. Walking along, along with Lumpur Liam, you take him to a public place sometimes, and still pick up a piece of rubbish, put it in a bin, just as if he was in, in the monastery. And just small acts of kindness or tidiness, carefulness, that reflect a mind that is training. You might say overall it's the practice of apamada, heedfulness, which is that dhamma which all the other dhammas fit into, the elephant's footprint of all the dhammas. In the core what? The training in the Vinaya, the training in the monastic regulations, following the routines, this is what brings up heedfulness. You take care with what you do, what you say, how you relate to the physical world, how you relate to other people, and then from that, how you relate to your own mind. If we're careful with the world around us and people around us, then we tend to take care of our own mind. Similarly, if we're more careless with the world around us and other people, well, we're more likely to be careless with our own mind. So the Vasa is a time to practice these things. We have less traveling, less movement, less interaction with family and friends, and we less work projects and so on. So it's a time really just to go back to basics and learn to look after your bowl, learn to look after your requisites, look after your kuti, keep your kuti swept, clean, learn to attend the whatever the required meetings are, attend the bindabhat. Everything that we do can be a basis for practice. And when you go bindabata, whether it's into town or just for a few moments, a few minutes down at the kitchen, you know, when you walk on bindabata, you watch what your mind is doing. Where are your eyes? Are they looking at the lay people or the expecting the food? Are your eyes restrained? Is your mind restrained? What you're thinking? You're mindful as you walk along till you finish the bindabata. As you eat, and we can 
use the Vasa time as a kind of a personal experiment to learn more about ourselves and how much food we need, different types of food and the amount of food. A very good practice many teachers recommend is to count the number of mouthfuls of food you have. Mulumpa Uttama said he used to practice eating, I think it was 32 mouthfuls of food. So he must have been very skinny in his early days. If you think about it, 32 mouthfuls is not very much. Sometimes that's a harder practice. Fasting is a practice people sometimes do, but fasting, you, you avoid the problem altogether. Stay at your kuti, which can have its own benefits. But the hardest practice is coming out to face the thing that brings up defilement. Learning to eat mindfully with restraint and wisely reflecting. But learn how many mouthfuls do you need of food. And you can be strict and actually limited or just observe. It doesn't let you don't necessarily have to limit your mouthfuls, but you just observe maybe on a day when you've put forth more physical effort, you need to eat more. You're just learning. We can count the number of steps from the Ikuihara back to your kuti. How many steps does it take? Does it change depending on how you feel? If you feel tired, maybe you take more steps because your steps are smaller. If you're full of beans or in a hurry, maybe you take less steps. Very simple, straightforward practices, but they highlight our state of mind. It's hard to be mindful of every step right from one building to another. Sooner or later you lose your awareness of the counting because you get lost in a mood. Something pops up in your mind and you can't focus on the counting anymore. Some desire, some memory prompts you, maybe with some negativity or some expectation or planning, fantasizing about the future. This is the way, using the core, using the monastic routine to highlight your state of mind and observe and learn from it. Watch how the thoughts and the moods come and go. It's also something to reflect on you, we can't always compare ourselves with others. Sometimes we hear others have done a certain practice, whether it's here or in another monastery, you might think, oh, that's what I should do. And we can get ideas like that. But everybody is a bit different. Physically, our bodies are different. Our characters are different. So sometimes you have to look and learn, see what suits you and helps you in your practice. And sometimes we look at others and we project our own image or ideal onto the other and either judge them, you know, overly praising them, thinking they must be very good or overly critical, thinking they're very bad. But in the end, you don't really know, do you? You don't know about others. 
we have to come back to ourselves. Sometimes we can underestimate other bhikkhus. Maybe on the outside one bhikkhu is, seems a bit rough or talks a lot or doesn't seem very mindful. But maybe on the inside they're very calm, very aware and really training their mind. Sometimes you even have monks who seem very mindful and restrained on the outside, but on the inside they're full of suppressed emotions and are really struggling. So be aware of, or be wary of, the tendency to judge others or compare with others. Lumpur Chai encourages us just to look at others enough, just to learn, just to get a basic knowledge of where they're going, what's happening. Maybe 10% of the time, 90% of the time, we keep bringing our attention back to ourselves. That's the, that's the place to practice. That's where we really learn. So we can use the Vasa time, the upcoming Vasa time for this kind of observation of ourselves. And even keep a, a record. Some monks keep a diary. Just learn about your own mind from day to day. What particular mind states are coming up? Whether you feel particularly joyful and happy, or you feel down, depressed, whether a particular kind of defilement, greed, or jealousy, or anger is coming up. You can note these things down to learn. The idea is to become more and more mindful, more aware of what's going on in your mind. You're using the training as a, as a vehicle for this, as a tool to help you understand yourself better. And from this we can, both through our own example of practicing, we can be of benefit to others. And then the knowledge, the understanding we get of our own mind, well, ultimately we can share that with others. Out of compassion, we can encourage others, give them support in their practice, give them some words of advice or share our own experience. So I'll just say this, this much for tonight and uh, we can carry on meditating for a while.